Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Ava. And I'm Beth. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience and psychology while talking throughout our own personal experiences. This week on the podcast, I spoke to Dr. Kimin Om, who is currently an assistant professor of psychology at Singapore Management University. And Kimin is a cultural psychology researcher, so a lot of his research looks at collective action and pro-social action from the lens of culture, which he takes pretty broadly. So he talks about culture as differences between different countries, but also looks at socioeconomic status. On the podcast, we talked about how culture relates to pro-environmental action and how people are willing to engage in pro-environmental action, as well as some of his work looking at how pandemics can influence people's views of people from different cultures. I'm currently an assistant professor of psychology at Singapore Management University, and I finished my PhD in social psychology at UC Santa Barbara in 2018. And in terms of the research I do, the primary interest is centered around pro-sociality. So the main question, broadly speaking, is that why people care about others' society and how to motivate people to care about these. So a lot of research has been done in the domain of collective challenges, such as climate change, recently uh, COVID-19 as well. So I know you primarily as a cultural psychologist, so as mm. having done research in a cultural psychology lab during your PhD, and a lot of your research does look at different cultural variables. But something that is interesting about your work is that you seem to take culture kind of broadly in the way that you define it. So you've done work mm. that we'll get to that looks at country-level variations, which we might be more familiar with, like comparing kind of East and West or collectivistic and individualistic countries. Um, but you've also mm -hmm. done work on social class and religion. So I was just wondering, before we get into research, what culture means for you in your research and how you kind of define that? And would you consider your work on social class and religion work on culture as well? So as you mentioned, I approach culture through sort of multi-level perspective. So Broadly speaking, for me, culture refers to any context that provides people who belong to that context, particular sets of values, beliefs, norms, practices, and so on, so that those elements importantly shape people's psychological tendencies. So in that way, how small do you think a culture could get? Like how granular can it get? Can it get to the culture of a specific Workplace, I think people talk about workplace cultures or mm -hmm. even a specific family. And at what point does yeah. it become yeah. more like almost individual variation rather than cultural? Or do right, you see right. those more as a spectrum? Yes. Oh, good question. I think absolutely. So for me, workplace and family can be a culture as well. As far as those uh, memberships or, or contacts sort of have uh, shared values and beliefs and norms, sometimes distinguishable, can be differentiated based on those elements from other groups and, and contexts, then that's culture for me. A lot of your work looks at this link between, or a lack thereof, of a link between attitudes and behavior. So your work, as we've talked about, takes this cultural perspective or looks at these shared values and reasons that people might have that are more about the environment rather than themselves. So I was wondering if you could kind of situate us in terms of where researchers focus on when they're not looking at culture in terms mm. of this idea of attitudes failing to lead to behavior or mm -hmm. action? Yeah, good question. I mean, there is a huge body of research on attitudes, and then it's a, it's a big area uh, looking at the relationship uh, between attitudes and behavior. And, and in that body of literature, usually people focus on characteristics of attitudes, so depending on characteristics of attitudes, some attitudes are more strongly predict behavior or motivation than other types of attitudes. For example, there's a called attitude strength perspective. So when attitudes are stronger, I mean, it sounds obvious, but attitudes are stronger than those attitudes are more predictive of behavior and, and motivation and action. And I mean, there are many factors that can determine strength of attitudes. But one thing is 
direct experience. So when people have more direct experience with attitudes objects, then we, I mean, research shows that people have people's attitude strength is kind of stronger, and then those attitudes are better predictive of action and behavior. Could you describe what you mean by attitude objects? Oh, so attitudes towards something, right? We can call it. Oh, it's an object. So it can be a policy. It can be a any. It can be a phone, right? Or it can be a using green products, for example. So anything can be an object. Anything you have attitudes towards something, right? Then it's an it's an attitude object. So you've done a lot of work looking at support for pro environmental policies. So. From this discussion of these different features of attitudes, mm. what do you feel like is missing in terms of that when cultural variation is not taken into account? And does the research that you do typically look at how culture might kind of moderate some of those effects, such mm-hmm. as attitude strength, maybe not being as important in different yeah. cultural contexts? I think culture is very relevant, especially given the domain uh, of the issue. So climate change, obviously, a global issue requiring change and active engagement of people all over the world. So without those changes, we cannot address the, the, the big issue. So that's why culture is very important and must be taken into account so that we can understand why and how people engage in those behaviors and then how to make a significant change across different societies. So with that, could you tell us a little bit about your findings on the role mm. of cultural level individualism specifically, predicting the link between attitudes and support for environmental action? So in the paper, basically, we looked at country level individualism, collectivism as a moderating variable on the, the relationship between environmental attitudes and people's support for environmental action. And what we found was that people's personal attitudes about the environment better predicted support for pro-environmental action in more individualistic countries compared to relatively collectivistic countries. Could you talk a little bit about why you think that is? Mm. Maybe tell us a little bit about what individualism and collectivism kind of really yeah. are. Right. So. Individualism, basically, it's a a cultural value highlighting achieving individuals' goals rather than collective goals, vice versa for collectivism. So collectivism, rather than pursuing personal goals, fulfilling collective goals and group goals, much more important. So because of that cultural priory, a lot of different psychological tendencies may be shaped so one thing is that in individualist cultures, self-expression is very important. So to achieve person's goals, expressing their values, attitudes, preferences, very important. And that's very highlighted culturally. And if we apply that notion to this context, people's you know, attitudes about the environment is naturally more expressed through their policy support engaging green actions in their lives in those cultural contexts, individualistic cultures rather than collectivist cultures. So that's the that's the reasoning. So I was kind of thinking about the reasoning behind the paper and the findings. Mm. And I was wondering, did you also find effects in collectivistic cultures if there was already this kind of strong norm and push for mm-hmm. environmental action? And that was seen as kind of this collective goal that you're mentioning here. Were people then more likely to support or to say that it was an individual level value? Um, I'm just wondering how much that idea Uh of like individual goal can be distinguished from the collective when you are in a position where it's so rapid. Yeah, it's a a great question. So basically you are uh, talking about people's individual values may be also affected by social norms and societal values, right? Yeah, that makes sense. And that's also consistent with some of the perspectives about attitudes and and culture and attitudes. So these researchers bringing that perspective often say that nature of attitudes are very different between individualistic cultures and collective cultures. Individualistic cultures, attitudes are more personal and based on their personal experience and values. But in 
collectivistic cultures, attitudes are not necessarily personal. It's more social. So their attitudes are shaped by, as you mentioned, social norms and, and social values, things like that. So that makes sense. But at least in our paper, we also measured the social norms, perceived social norms about uh, environmental behaviors. But we didn't really see the, a significant correlation, at least, between personal environmental attitudes and, and perceived social norms in both cultures, individualist cultures and collective cultures. So in this paper, you mentioned that it was really this country level individualism, but you also measured an individual, individual yeah. level individualism. So why do you think that that was not predictive? Is it because there was like a ceiling for some mm. of these cultures and that it was the variation between the cultures was just so much bigger than within cultures? But follow paper with David Sherman and Hee-jung Kim, more recent paper, we also looked at individual level collectivism. And we found quite consistent effects. So basically, people's environmental attitudes less predicted support for environmental action for more collectivistic individuals as individuals. So maybe slightly different. I mean, we need more systematic research in terms of which effects are larger in terms of the sizes, but at least null hypothesis testing-wise, we see some consistency. But you may be right, individual level effects may be somewhat smaller than larger societal defects. So since we're talking about individualism, collectivism, mm -hmm. do you see those or is there agreement in the literature as those being two different poles, or are they completely mm, different constructs? Interesting. Typically? Yeah, great question. People have different ideas and depending on what level we, we talk about. So generally, people say that at the societal level, it's bipolar. So collectivism and individualism is just one dimension, lower scores, more collectivistic, higher scores, individualism, or vice versa. The data and, and research so far has shown that at the individual level, these individualism and collectivism are more independent. So that's why we usually measure separately. So individualism scale and collectivism scale and then put them together in, into the analysis at the individual level. Why do you think there is that difference between the broader societal level and the individual level of it? seeming to be poles in that mm -hmm. broader case and then two right, different right. constructs. I mean, my assumption is that probably it's more data-driven. People have both ideas and not particularly theoretically driven. It can go either way based on the fact analysis and those types of analysis usually show that, yes, societal level, one dimension, and then individual level, two different constructs. But one thing is that because we usually follow the Hoopseed Index, when we analyze the, the effects of societal level, individualism, collectivism, and that's how he developed initially. So it's one dimension, one end, collectivism, and the other individualism. Based on a series of international surveys, I think mostly from workers. He developed this index based on a lot of statistical modeling. And he's a person who came up with these famous, I think now six culture dimensions, including individualism, collectivism, power distance, uncertainty, avoidance, things like that. So I think there is a possibility with other data and analysis, maybe we have different structures and even at the societal level, we may see independent dimensions for collectivism and individualism. So I'm getting back to the findings of these two different studies that in cultures that are individualistic and potentially in people that are more collectivistic, that mm -hmm. for the individualistic people or people in those cultures, that there tends to be a stronger link between their personal attitudes and their support for policies. And mm -hmm. that for people who are more collectivistic, there's that weaker link. So what do you take away from this in terms of how we can have these kind of practical implications? Does mm -hmm. this mean that activists should attempt to cultivate different responses and should be focusing on different things in different cultures? 
we can say that based on the data, maybe changing individuals' attitudes is more important in individualistic cultures, whereas highlighting social norms and cultivating more pro-social, pro-environmental social norms are more important in collective cultures. But I think the reality is not that simple. So, I mean, as other research of ours shows, even within country, huge variation according to other factors, including socioeconomic status, religion, even state-level culture. So almost an individual's cultural profile is very unique and, and complex, you know, determined by various factors and backgrounds. So I would say the broader point is that you need to pay attention to these cultural characteristics when you approach a certain target group or population to make change. And cultural analysis needs to come first to have a more concrete idea of which intervention and which approach may be more effective for those groups. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So that was a perfect lead into the next question that I wanted to ask, which was that you've also looked at support for policy, pro-environmental policy in people of high and low socioeconomic status. But Uh there you focused on a different kind of main variable of interest or mediator of interest, which was sense of control. So could Mm. you discuss why sense of control was so important, maybe over something like collectivism? Because I think there's some research at least showing that Mm. low socioeconomic status is also associated with more collectivism. Right, right. So through our multiple papers, I think a sense of control is kind of key psychological uh, variable explaining the association between attitudes and action or or motivation. So collectivism, socioeconomic status, and religion, they are all relevant to a sense of control. So collectivist cultures and lower socioeconomic status individuals and more religious people, for them, having a personal sense of control, basically a belief or perceptions that they can make a significant influence over their life outcomes or a belief that they have to have personal control over all things happening around themselves, that notion is less important in those contexts. So that's why it's less important or less valued or it's basically practically less possible for people in those contexts to more directly express their attitudes, beliefs through action, motivation, and decision-making. So that's why sense of control is kind of centered variable connecting between those more macro-cultural variables such as individualism, social status and and religion, and how they moderate the link between attitudes and and behavior. So in maybe a collectivistic context where there's lower sense of personal control, in that context, that seems like that fits well with the broader culture. But if you Mm. are low SES in Mm -hmm. Western context, and Uh you're in a society where there's a lot of push yeah. for bootstrapping and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Is that more detrimental? And is mm. that something that then is better to target for change potentially? Yeah, great question. I think at least based on our data, those multiple you know, factors can co-influence, you know, jointly shape one person's sense of control. In that case, maybe those effects somewhat cancel out each other. And the paper I mentioned with Hee-jung and David, in that paper, actually, we looked at the interaction between individuals' collectivism and socioeconomic cities. So we found that people with lower collectivism and with higher socioeconomic status, they actually reported higher sense of control. And those people, we found that the association between environmental attitudes and pro-environmental motivation, the link is much stronger. So basically, the point is that, as relevant to our previous discussion, various social cultural factors shape sense of control. And that's why we need to take into account those multiple social cultural backgrounds to understand the psychology of sustainability. So when you mentioned this idea of canceling 
each other out mm, yeah. was the pattern of your data then showing that people from collectivistic cultures but who were high SES uh-huh. were kind of at a middle point and looked similar to people who are low SES in highly individualistic cultures. And then right, people right. who were low SES and collectivistic cultures had the, the lowest link. Was it kind of a linear pattern? Yeah, yeah something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, as we can imagine, people with low socioeconomic status, you know, they don't have resources, social and material resources. So naturally, they don't feel greater uh, sense of control from all the years. And then they adapted to it. And that's why for them, direct expression of emotions, attitudes, and beliefs, it's not really common. I mean, less common, relatively speaking, but it's more common probably they need to adapt to situations because of those lack of resources. So that's why a sense of control, a lower sense of control explains why their environmental attitudes are less predictive of their pro-environmental action and, and motivation for a lower SES individuals. So in this case, because this different sense of control seems to stem from a very different place than the collectivism, which is, as you mentioned, this mm. idea of the importance of shared goals rather than individual yeah. goals, whereas right, with right. low SES, it's really about this kind of lack of resources. I guess, what does that mean in terms of how Mm -hmm. to face this issue? And would it be important to kind of target this so that people Mm -hmm. who are low SES are able to Mm -hmm. put their thoughts into action more? Or does this kind of speak to the idea that maybe we really just need structural change Mm. that allows these people to just not have to think about it because they don't have the resources to be putting time into devoting their energy Mm -hmm. into... Um, support for policy or other types of collective action? Yeah, great question. I mean, in that particular paper on socioeconomic status, we also found that perceived social norms about pro-environmental behaviors among their family and and friends, those are more important in explaining pro-environmental motivation for low SES individuals. So uh, from that perspective, one take uh whole message we can think about is that we can build on different psychological levers to try to make changes between high SS community and low SS community. But another thing is that if sense of control is very important, and if we can assume that a lot of people already have quite pro-environmental concerns and attitudes, then I think Another possibility is that we we try to uh, boost uh, their uh, sense of control and self-efficacy, you know, the sense that we can make a significant change to address these issues, then maybe that will be quite effective for low SS communities if they have uh, pro-environmental attitudes and concerns, help them more directly express those concerns and attitudes in their motivation and then policy support and engaging in green behaviors. Do you think that would be a good intervention in collectivistic cultures as well to say you do have a sense mm. of agency and yeah. it's the self-efficacy uh-huh. or because of the different kind of context, maybe that would influence cultural fit? Would Mm-mm-mm. that maybe not be a wise path to go down in a context where collectivism is kind of the root of the lack of link between attitude and behavior or support? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, social norm-based interventions, definitely, I think it will be quite effective in collectivistic cultures. And if the assumption holds that in collectivist cultures, whatever cultures we're talking about, if they have a relatively pro-environmental attitudes and concerns, yeah, I think a boosting sense of control definitely will will help them behave and act on their attitudes and, and beliefs. Another possibility is that maybe in collective cultures, we can try to highlight collective efficacy as well. So, I mean, efficacy research is sometimes differently conceptualized personal self-efficacy versus collective self-efficacy. So, Maybe in collectivistic cultures, highlighting collective self-efficacy, possibly more effective in helping 
people behave uh, according to their pro-environmental concerns and attitudes and then more freely express those attitudes. Makes a lot of sense. I like that your research because it kind of breaks things down into really that the key is control or that it's collectivism. It points to these almost like pain points that we're able to address. So I think that's nice. Mm -hmm. It feels like psychology is doing something. I think it might be helpful just because we're saying attitude and support for policy, but maybe Uh it's hard to picture what that means. So maybe you could just talk about like how you measure those things and what we're talking about when we're saying attitudes and what we're talking about when we're saying support for policy and those kinds of outcomes. So attitudes, basically how people feel about the environment and environmental issues. And in our research in particular, we looked at environmental concerns uh, and climate change beliefs as well. So basically, broadly speaking, how much people are concerned about this sustainability issue, as well as people people perceive as a as a, a real problem happening right now and in climate change beliefs we also um, typically measure perceived human responsibility so how much people humans contribute to this climate change and sustainability problems so those are two main uh, constructs and then I refer to just broadly environmental attitudes so environmental concerns, and climate change beliefs. So essentially, you're asking participants, how worried are you about the climate? And how much is this a problem to you that you're concerned about? And mm-hmm. how much do you think that humans had a hand in influencing the situation? Yeah, responsible for okay. this problem. Yeah, Support for environmental action or pro-environmental action is a very broad and inclusive construct we examined throughout the research. So basically, any actions and engagement to help the environment, it can be pro-environment policies, it can be uh, individual level actions such as recycling, consuming green products, using public transport, things like that, or donation to pro-environmental organizations. And we use just diverse methods and measures to tap this support for environmental action, such as how much do you support pro-environmental policies, such as green tax, for example, and how often and how frequently you engage in these behaviors, such as recycling, driving less, eating less meat, things like that. I think understanding the way that you're asking these questions almost makes the findings even more surprising in that you're measuring like this hypothetical almost and not Mm. people's actual engagement in protests or eating less meat or Uh like really voting something into law. So you'd think that because it's lower stakes and it's low effort Mm -hmm. that they would just be Uh like, yeah, I think that this is important. So this is in aligns with my belief. So I think that makes the discrepancy even more surprising because work that looks at things like people's willingness to confront someone who said something outlandish Mm -hmm. or racist or something like that in those Mm -hmm. contexts, like the link is very strong. So they'll always say, yes, I would do that. But then when you measure whether they actually would, they don't, but Uh like the willingness is there. So it's very surprising that even the willingness is dampened. But I was wondering, are there differences? Do you think there would be differences in your research if you were to look at actual engagement Uh in supporting policy or engaging in any kind of protest or just buying green products Mm -hmm. and things like that? Yeah, great question. They are definitely correlated. Not perfectly, of course. I would say just a moderate correlation is there. And definitely there is a significant gap between willingness to take actions versus actual actions. I mean, more research needs to examine our findings and whether they apply quite consistently or same manner, actual actions and behaviors. We are moving towards that direction as well. And recent manuscript we are uh, working on uh, with Heijang and David as well, we looked at moderation of socioeconomic status and, and environmental concern, but the outcome is more uh, actual behavior. So we analyzed actual shopping behaviors of consumers by collecting their receipts after shopping. This is UK data at 
Tesco. So, so far, the data seems to support our findings. Consistently, we see a weaker correlation or association between environmental concern and these shopping behaviors. Basically, consuming green products, right, pro-environmental products, weaker for low SES individuals you know, compared to high SES individuals. So we are getting there. And yeah, I'm excited to do more research on actual behaviors and engagement. That's a very cool study. I think that definitely makes sense because, as I said, I would have thought that maybe the effects would be diminished if mm. you're just asking about willingness to engage mm-hmm. your support that's in this hypothetical. So I would imagine that your data are just going to get even more stark when you measure actual behavior. I guess this is going to be a more serious thing I speak about than usually. I guess probably not a lot of you know, because I now am doing a PhD and have all these opportunities, but I grew up in a low socioeconomic household and I'm in a really fortunate situation that my family was able to, I don't know how you describe it, move out of that situation or whatever. I was, I was lucky, but I had a lot of time in my childhood and my teenage years where we're in that, we would classify as that category. And now I'm around like, you know, people who are not like that, who are very educated and have a lot of money and all those other things and houses and everything else. So I feel like I'm in this position where I've experienced both sides and I've seen how people talk about issues in both sides. And then I've also lived in America and been around different people with different sorts of levels of opportunities there as well. And what I also always find quite, I guess I get a bit annoyed about is being in more of these, you know, educated, I guess you would say affluent circles now and like in and academia and whatever else and talking about things like, oh, people's response to climate change and people's response to this. Like people don't really understand when you don't have any money, you don't have the ability or energy or effort to think about other things. Like it's not that these people are bad or they're this or that you just can't because your day is based on survival. And you know, I grew up in a time where in Australia there was a lot more support from the government. So we were really lucky and all of our childcare was free and my mum was supported. But mum and I speak about if we were in this position now with the current economic climate and whatever else, we would kind of be not okay. And I don't understand why we expect people in those environments and situations to these bigger world issues, they just you just can't, you you can't. Your day to day is just surviving, and how you're going to survive this day and the next day, and you know there's a lot of people right now. I think across the world, who it's like how I'm going to afford food that day. So when it comes to making decisions about like how much plastic packaging is on it, or if there's palm oil or whatever else that now as a privileged person I make those decisions. Oh, I don't want that. But I am in a position where I can make those decisions and not everyone can. And I don't know, I get I get upset when I hear people generalize things about people's beliefs or motivations in other groups because you don't really understand what their concerns are. And especially people if you're from the country and you have less access to things like it's not. I mean, I know I always go back to this, but I don't think that it's that people don't care or are inherently negative I think that people just have other things that they have to worry about sometimes that a certain group of people don't have to worry about so when it comes to climate action I think that then I feel like it's the responsibility of people like me now who are in these privileged positions to like help make the government make changes or industry make changes and not in the hands of individuals who are trying to work out how they can buy food for their kid for the day so Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think that is something that I think Kimin would agree with, given that I think the idea of they're just not having as much of this sense of control when you're in a situation where like, yeah, how are you going to get a sense of control if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, where you don't feel like you have a stable job that you could fall back on? And I think it's good to hear you say that because in science communication and that we're 
talking about these studies after they've come out. And I think you and I are both interested in implications that one thing that you could take away from this is like, how could we get everyone to be more invested in trying to engage in collective action and promote climate solutions? But I think maybe the implication of this study is really like these people shouldn't be held responsible for these issues unless you're like extremely passionate and you are a person who can go above and beyond for whatever reason it is. But if you're struggling to put food on the table. Yeah, you're not going to be like, I'm going to go on the school strike today. And sometimes when I see people now, I don't know, like shaming people, especially about around environmental stuff, making decisions about buying certain products or whatever. I really don't like that because I don't think that not everyone has, yeah, well, exactly that sense of control or even that choice of what they can do and that decision making. It's not that they're going out there being like, oh, I'm going to buy all this plastic because I don't care about the world. It's just like, this is efficient or easy. And I'm in a situation where I need to have something like that. So that's why I think it's a broader responsibility than these these groups. But that's just from what I've experienced. Yeah. And I think it speaks to some of Kimmon's other work, although kind of in a different way, but about more in the collectivism versus individualism research, this idea that it's really norms. And even if someone really cares about the environment, if you're not really in a position, be it because of the way that your culture is imposed on you or because of material things that you don't have access to, then you can't really engage in those types of behaviors. And, you know, if we had a better system or like bans in grocery stores on wrapping one eggplant in a ton of plastic, then that just wouldn't be a situation where someone's like, this is easy for me. And if there were better solutions, then that allows those people to make better choices as well. So I definitely I think there needs to be structural changes that come down from the top and regulation because as Kim and talked about, climate change is a huge issue that you're not going to solve on your own. Like individual actions can help, I think, especially if you're engaging in collective behaviors. But at the end of the day, like most people aren't the ones really making the decisions, because if you're like, I need a vegetable tonight and there's only one option, what are you going to do? You're going to choose the easiest option that probably has the most plastic on it. So since, Beth, you've experienced living in three different countries. Yeah, four, actually. Four different countries. Yeah. And these different socioeconomic statuses, I guess, how do you feel about this idea that that all of these differences are cultural? Do you feel like you experienced bigger cultural shifts, whatever you're taking that to mean, when you moved from a lower socioeconomic status to call it that to a higher one? Or did you have bigger culture shocks moving from different countries? That's so interesting. I honestly feel like the cultural shift from moving from a low socioeconomic group to a high one is pretty crazy <laughs> because and then you all of a sudden start interacting with people who it's just everything shifts and it's like pe people's experience and their situations with their families are less, I don't know, it, it's, it just seems like you move to a space where less things go wrong for people and it's like that's a really big difference and I think that is a, is a big shift and it really makes you understand how how problematic that is but that definitely seems to be if you move from that like the friends that you have and the lives that they've lived have just been like thank god easier and there's been less things occurring or going wrong or all of these kinds of things I mean it's, it's just very interesting that that's a really really big difference that you do notice in terms of I guess I don't know what you would refer to them I guess just things going wrong in life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't have an experience where like, I mean, we're exposing ourselves on this podcast today, I guess, <laughs> but both my parents are academics. Like I grew up pretty wealthy is the word, but definitely like very comfortable as like humanities, like two parents who were in the humanities, one with a nice stable professorship. So I feel like I had a very easy life socioeconomically. And I think one thing that People who grow up more privileged, I think it's really easy to trick yourself into thinking that you know people from all walks of life. Yeah. Because I feel like if you would ask me when I was like 
you know, 20 or something, if I if I knew people who were from all different class backgrounds, I would have been like, yeah, for sure. Like, I know people who are not wealthy. I know people who are working class, whatever. But I didn't like really like I wasn't close, like super close with people, maybe until undergrad with people who were just less affluent. And then when I met my partner, he's from a very working class background in Spain. And when I met him and spent time with his family, I was like, oh, my God, like I am a privileged, honestly, because I remember it was just the types of questions that I would ask and the things that I was expecting and being confronted with, like, that's not the reality for people. Like, I remember asking his parents what his grandparents did or something like what they did for work. And they were like so confused by the question because they were like, who cares? Like, why would you ask me that? That doesn't define who that person is. And I was like. Oh, like this is a very different way to live where you're just living to be a person. And I was like, oh, dang, this is like a very different way to be. And there were like some jobs that because a lot of his family, like they work in the factory and like the same factory or they work like cleaning streets and stuff like that. And I was like, because I was like, those don't sound like things that like jobs that people still have today, because I was like, those are like old timey jobs. And I was like, wow, like there's truly something wrong with me and I feel like that was a real wake-up call and I think I know it sounds ridiculous when you're hearing me say this I'm sure but I do feel like as you're saying if there aren't people in the room who actually have those experiences and this goes for lots of different things obviously this goes for race this goes for socioeconomic class this goes for language you could think that you get it but you don't until you're actually in it and obviously I don't get it I just am now part of a family that's from a different class background but I think you really get confronted by these assumptions that you have when you're moving from one to the other and it does feel like there's just a whole different way of being like a different set of values of what's important what you're doing with your day-to-day and yeah like what matters as a person I think yeah Um, everyone has an arts degree like that's just yeah You know, that's, yeah. you got to have one of those. I mean, I've got one. <laughs> I can't believe you didn't think people who were cleaners didn't, they were old-timey jobs. Cleaner less. Like, I was like, that's a real job. But, like, I don't know, a factory? I was like, like, like oh, I feel like when I picture work. a factory, it's robots. Yeah, it's robots. And I was like, damn, my parents didn't, in that aspect, did not raise me <laughs> right. Because, like... <laughs> And it's not some, I think like if someone had asked me, I would have been like, of course, if I heard the story from someone else, I'd be like, what an ignorant, whatever. But then it was just the automatic assumptions that I found myself having in those situations. And just the way that I was socialized to like automatically ask those types of questions. I Um, think that's the point. It's like not even something that you're really aware of. It's just assumptions that you have about how people are living their lives. So you've looked at responses to Ebola and COVID-19. And in this work that you've done, you find this sort of inconsistency, or at least I read it as a sort of inconsistency, between xenophobic responses and Uh support for xenophobic policy when there was a perceived risk of contagion. Can Uh you discuss how that study kind of came about? There is a body of research showing that when people feel susceptible to a certain disease, people usually have more xenophobic tendencies. And I mean, it makes sense, right? When you feel threatened, you don't want to interact with just uncertain groups of individuals or unknown uh, groups of individuals to be safe, right? And in our research, actually, what we showed was that when people feel threatened by a certain disease, this link between xenophobic attitudes and then support for more xenophobic policies weaker. So the link became weaker, mainly because when people feel threatened, even for those people less xenophobic in their attitudes, they are more willing to support those xenophobic policies. So in this paper, you're essentially finding that even if people are not xenophobic themselves, that they Mm -hmm. are then still going to support almost what you think of like an outcome of xenophobia, which is these Uh policies that may be like 
ban immigrants or uh-huh. tourists from certain places. Yes. So yes. it's moving in that direction because there's a strong link between the threat of contagion and support for things that might kind of rein that in. Yeah. The policies we looked at, I mean, it can be a effective, but it's not really reasonable because completely banning traveling from a certain country in which the, the disease originated from, and also a ban of children who came from that particular country in public school system, things like that. So these policies are pretty extreme and, and potentially discriminatory. So we found that people with less xenophobic, we can say nice people, they also, in that situation, when they feel threatened by a certain disease, they are more willing to support those policies that can be concerning as a society. When I was thinking about this study, I kind of didn't know how to take it because Mm. on the one hand, it feels positive that there's not this increase in at least overt, maybe anti-immigrant or xenophobic sentiments. But Uh then the net result is Mm -hmm. still these discriminatory policies that, as you say, don't really necessarily make any sense. So I just was unsure of what that means and how we can address this and whether it's more concerning because people Mm. just seem to not be aware of it. So it doesn't feel like you can get to the root of the problem. Or is it less concerning because it just means that you can try to explain Uh that these policies don't actually fix the problem that they're worried about. One thing is that this is driven by people's sense of vulnerability to a disease, right? So I think maybe it's important to make people feel vulnerable to a reasonable extent. Sometimes when we have these diseases happening, just the fear and vulnerability just amplified through a lot of different channels, right? Media, social network services, and just talking with others. So maybe, I'm not sure you know, what, what would be more effective, but policy level and, and experts try to convey reasonable information and conversation so that people, people have more reasonable levels of threats and vulnerabilities so that we can minimize these xenophobic tendencies and, and support for extreme actions against outgroups. That makes a lot of sense. I was wondering also in terms of implications, how you squared your data with the rise with COVID-19 specifically and anti-Asian hate and how a lot of that was people were pretty vocal about the fact that they were committing hate crimes because they were viewing people that they thought of as Chinese or someone who looked Chinese to them Mm -hmm. as like these vectors of disease. It seems like you didn't really see that reflected in your data, that those... Mm -hmm. Those kinds of sentiments weren't there, but it was just that support for policy rather than saying, I explicitly think that these people are all carrying these types of diseases. So I was just wondering like, where you see the link between your work and your data and this anti-Asian hate that seemed to have stemmed from, from fear of contagion as well. Good question. I mean, those are kind of in the middle, I guess. So between xenophobic attitudes and policy support, and this is kind of in the middle. And I mean, the honest answer is, I, I don't know, right? We need a uh, study looking at the results. But maybe just my sense is that those are still attitudes. So closer to xenophobic attitudes, we measured as a predictor. So we may not see this interaction pattern we found because I, I feel like those people not xenophobic in their attitudes may not necessarily report explicitly these people a problem and then they bring their diseases, things like that. And maybe there could be an argument for potentially people who were then aggressing people who they felt like looked Chinese or looked Asian, that maybe Uh those attitudes had just been kind of laying dormant. I know that was an argument for kind of the Mm. Trump era as well that this was just kind of an excuse. Uh And so their attitudes didn't actually change. It was just like there was an excuse to act on it. So maybe that's why in your data you wouldn't see any kind of shift. But I just thought that was really interesting because it seemed... I think so. um, I think so. Yeah, kind of different from what I would have Mm. expected going into reading your study. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe those Asian hate crimes more likely to occur among those people in the first place, quite xenophobic. And then that event, COVID-19, coming from Asian country, such as China, as you mentioned, that that functioned as a trigger for them or as a way providing a context in which they can more freely express their original xenophobic attitudes. But my perspective is that those actions and in crimes may not be happening among this side, people with lower xenophobic attitudes. Yeah, for sure. I think so, definitely. So the question that we'd like to end on is for you to share what you're working on next that you're excited about and kind of a preview of what you'll mm-hmm. be doing and what our listeners should look out for in terms of papers to read and projects that you're putting out next. One active topic ongoing is religion. So I was raised in a quite religious family. So I just always had a lot of questions about religion, why people believe in religion and why people go to church and why people believe in this kind of stuff. But basically, religion is very messy construct. It's very complex, including various notions, beliefs and norms and practices. And sometimes they are not really converging and then providing opposite messages sometimes. So I'd like to look at, you know, how these different elements in religion affect people's environmental attitudes and approaches and actions. And then how can we leverage these elements to motivate religious people engage in green actions? That's one active project I'm working on. And another direction is that I'm moving to Australia and it's a management department, not a psychology department. So my sense is that I'm going to work with a lot of organization behavior scholars. So I'm interested in looking at corporate social responsibility as well. Companies and firms, definitely big players in this sustainability issue. So I'm interested in looking at how and why employees and leaders support social responsibility of the firms. And then the other direction in turn, how corporate social responsibility affects outcomes relevant to organizations such as job satisfaction, motivation, and employee well-being, and so on. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of both interesting and very important work. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and all the best of luck moving to Australia. Thanks so much. Thanks for uh, having me and thanks for your time. Thank you to Dr. Kim and Om for joining us this episode. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but in the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com.